Welcome to the latest episode of Back to the Bins. We're so glad you could join us. Whether you're a brand new listener or you've been here from the very beginning, we appreciate your patronage and hope that you'll continue coming back each and every week for more Back Issue goodness. I am Scott Gardner, your co-host, and I am thrilled to welcome to this program the host of the Avengers Assemble podcast. I should say it as Avengers Assemble podcast, my very good friend, Will Sanchez. Hey, Will. Hey, Scott. How's it going, man? Hey, it's going great. I'm so glad to have you aboard. Now, you know, we've, we've of course, done many episodes of, of your fine program together, and we've done some uh, episodes of, of Two True Freaks where you were actually the butt of many jokes in some of those episodes. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm really glad that uh, we finally got together for uh, for Back to the Bins. I know we've both been wanting to do this for a while, so I'm really, yeah, man, really excited. Really, yeah, I've been really ex- anticipating it. It's uh, always a pleasure to... Talk some comics with uh, the great Scott. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that my own right there. I like that. <laughs> All right, before we get down to business here, I just had a, a quick thank you. I wanted to shout out to Adriana Ferguson, one of the co-hosts of the Super Future Friends. Um, you know, I had uh, both Adriana and Kirsten on the show back. I think it was episode 19. I, rem- I think. Anyway, she uh, very graciously and totally unexpectedly sent me a copy of her um, Legion sketchbook uh, that's self-published. It's called uh, We Are the Legion, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. It's it's just awesome. It's just chock full of all kinds of like everything from like simple little pencil sketches all the way up to you know fully rendered, beautiful, colored art and everything. Just all dedicated to her love of the Legion. And it's just beautiful. It totally blew me away, and, and I so appreciated it. So I just wanted to you know, give her the, the public shout-out thank you on that. Thank you, Adriana. It was really, really awesome. Yeah, actually, I actually saw that. That was a really nice-looking book. It's um, gorgeously rendered, and I, I'm very jealous of you, Scott. I would like to have that. <laughs> <laughs> and I also listened to the episode she, uh, they did with, with um, this will be future friends did with you guys um, on Back to the Bench. It was very good. I, they, they're very energetic. <laughs> oh yes, they are. Yes, they are. And uh, the, I, I really I enjoy them so much. I mean, they they do their episodes pretty much the same way they performed in in that episode of Back to the Bins, and it's what keeps me listening. They've they've just got great banner between the two of them. They're they're full of energy, and they just keep me laughing through the whole thing because they have very insightful. Uh, opinions and 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 observations about these corny old legion stories from the 50s and 60s that just slay me because i read a lot of those stories as a kid you know in reprints or whatever i'm not that old but you know i read a lot of those stories as a kid and just didn't think anything of some of the absolutely ridiculous antics that go on in those and so they point that stuff out and it just cracks me up when i go you know, you know, they start ragging on something, and I, I get a little defensive sometimes, going, "Hey, no, I like that story." And then about halfway through, I realize, "Wow, they're right. That story is really, really stupid." You know? <laughs> so it's it's a lot of fun. I really, really enjoy their show. But anyway, we are here to talk about our comics today, and I forgot. Am I going first, or are you going first? <laughs> I, I go. I guess yeah, I'll go first. Then. Oh, okay. Go ahead. All right, before we uh, we start, I just want to you know bust out the Back to the Future reference. One point twenty one gigawatts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was excellent. <laughs> All right, Mr. Doc Gardner, if you if the time circuits are ready for input, and we've double checked our flux capacitor, get ready because we're going back to July nineteen ninety one. 
with DC Comics The Flash, The Fastest Man Alive, number 52. Now, uh, this was a comic amongst uh, some of my earliest childhood comics growing up. So this comic carries with it a degree of sort, you know, sentimental value, since um, this is also the first Flash book that I've ever gotten. Um, now, let's get into the you know nitty gritty. The, the cover of this issue is drawn by Greg Laroque, uh, inked by Jose Marzan Jr., uh, which has also you know has the Flash showing the IRS badge uh, to this issue's demonic villains, uh, telling them freeze. I'm with the IRS. There's <laughs> a funny, uh, cool little interesting visual. And uh, interestingly enough, the cover advertises the Flash TV show, which I also grew up watching Saturday nights uh, on CBS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this wasn't the, you know, the Wally uh, Wally West Flash though. This is the uh, the Barry Allen one who had a certain Wally West esque uh, elements, but was nonetheless portrayed very well by the great uh, John Wesley Ship. Oh yeah, yeah, he did a really good job. And uh, I missed that show. Up. I'll see if I get it on DVD one day. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all right, the interior is, is uh, written by William Mes- Messner Loeb's. I think is that's the way you uh-huh. pronounce. I think so. And, yeah, that's the the writer is William Messner Loeb's. Artist is Greg Laroque, and anchor is Jose Marzan Jr. And the name of the story is called Death and Taxes. And the plot of the story is this: uh, Wally West is in Washington D.C. at the IRS office. Uh, being audited and apparently owes the U.S. government a substantial amount of money. Uh, given this issue's happenings, apparently it's widely known that Wally West is the Flash. Uh, the IRS used his services to collect taxes as well as being a venue in which Wally can pay back uh, the debt that he owes the IRS. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Wally hangs out with some friends, uh, goes out to the park to walk his dog, uh, and while at the park eventually meets up with a mob boss who's been keeping tabs on Wally since... Uh, he was in the IRS building. Uh, so this guy tries to hire Wally to collect from a, a man called Miles Anton Kramer, uh, spelled with a C, C-R-A-M-E-R, uh, who owes the mob a considerable amount of money as well. And uh, he's also had uh, you know, a few dealings in the occult. Uh, the mob guy then t- says to Wally that it would be worth his while if he could punch Kramer uh, 600 times until he was dead. And to which I thought this is a very humorous uh, <laughs> reply. Wally humorously replies, sounds interesting. How about I punch you 300 times just to keep in practice? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. And then um, to which the mob boss coughs you know, nervously and quietly exits the scene. You know, I just, you know, you get out of here because this guy's going to, you know, he means, means real business. And um, while he was, um, was hoping to get a, a location on Kramer with this mob individual, but he notices that, uh, he pretty much scared the living shit out of him. <laughs> and a little bit after this happens, uh, a group of individuals pick up Wally, who are supposed to be, you know, supposed to assist them in finding this Miles Kramer guy. Uh, a little after this, Wally then investigates the previous estate in which uh, Kramer had resided in. And with some cunning and some super speed, uh, you know, tricks, he finds the directions to where Kramer is currently residing. Uh, we then switch to Kramer's penthouse suit, which. Uh, where he's with his set of associates and is told that the Flash is coming after him. Uh, as they're about to evacuate, Wally bursts onto the scene by scaling the side of the building, going by them unnoticed at first, and tells them that he's not there to give them grief. He's there to collect their taxes. Uh, they notice that the Flash is by himself and underestimate him with the female of the group, who turns into a fiery being, uh, fiery being uh, who controls Hellfire and attacks him. Uh, the rest of the group then follows suit and changes from their human forms 
into their monstrous ones, with uh, Kramer himself turning into a really sinister-looking demon. Flash then continues to tell them that you know he's just doing his job. He's not their you know not their enemy, but they won't listen to reason as usual, and the villains are like that. And uh, they all keep attacking him, and they all display their powers. You know, one has like these sharp little needles. Uh, one has kind of a mummified look, and as I said before, one is like a kind of a hellfire kind of almost human torch kind of lady. So, well, you know, Flash holds you know Flash holds his own quite well against them, using his super speed against them. We then get to a certain point in the book where Kramer wants to deal with uh, Wally directly, and and begins to tell Flash his whole uh, demonic his whole demonic backstory. So get this: he goes to hell collects all his power, and masters hell itself on top of bringing back minions to his cause. And does he do it for the fame? Does he do it for the bitches? Or for the power? No. <laughs> he does it to bring him a fortune through stock manipulation. I repeat, stock manipulation. Yeah, the kids the kids want to hear about that, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. To me, if I were you know, a demon hell lord, I, that would be the least uh, you know, thing I would worry about. You know, stock. <laughs> but, but that's just me. <laughs> So anyway, after this whole spiel, uh, he and his minions continue to rip apart the city of Washington, D.C., uh, you know, while fighting the Flash. And then Flash tells Kramer that uh, to fight the Flash is basically futile because, uh, or should I say futile, because Kramer and his crew, they can't catch the Flash. And he, he gives them, you know, the disposition that they would eventually be um, destroying everything in their path, trying to fight it out, you know, with the Flash. So they'd be kind of pretty much fighting him forever. So Kramer finally decides that if you can't beat the Flash, well, he might as well just say, hey, you know, eh, let me just give him the tax money that I owe. <laughs> and finally, you know, after this quick transaction, the mayor comes in fuming about the property damage and wants and wants Flash to detain Kramer. But Wally says that, you know, he can let Kramer off because he's not part of the government. And Flash and, and um, then Wally flashes the mayor his IRS badge and tells the mayor that he can send this, uh, his property bill damage to the IRS, which... Admittedly, is a dickish move, but hey, it was funny as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and that ends the that issue's uh, synopsis. I really like this issue. This is really enjoyable. It's kind of it's interesting that it's played uh, straight all the way until like kind of towards the end, where we kind of see a really silly uh, plot twist with the with the whole stock manipulation thing. And uh, I this is one of the things that I really like about DC at the time was that they were calling really much. They were very much going ahead with Wally as the main Flash, and he right. was really interesting. You know, I don't think we needed a Barry Allen for that, but <laughs> uh, it was a very cool issue, and um, the artwork was really nice. Uh, Greg LaRoque, he's, I guess it would, it would be fair to say he's kind of a, a legend in the industry because mm-hmm. um, he's done quite a lot of things. He does, he's done the Marvel team up, um, the Flash, and countless other things. But he's been very consistent with this book, and. He's he's been on it, I believe I don't want to say from the beginning, but he has a, quite a, a workload of of issues. And I actually met him at, at one of the New York cons, and he's a he's a really nice guy. And I actually bought his art book, uh, and I was you know really impressed. And he even signed a few of my comics, of my Flash comics, one of my first Flash comics. So is he uh, still in comics today? No, unfortunately, um, since he's one of those kind of forgotten veterans, right. Um, you know, it, it's it's a it's sadly a, a fact of the industry that they don't really like to hire too much um, older talent. So they like to come to the to new guys all the time, which is a shame because he's still got it. And if you see his sketchbook, it, it's it's quite good. 
Well, you know, just a side tangent for a second. I know that you and I keep tossing around that idea of doing a whole show about the the forgotten talent in comics, and I, I so want to do that one of these days because there are so many stories, just like this guy, of guys that came along, did either like a run or sometimes did just a couple of issues, made a you know a splash or a semi splash, and then. Phew, they're gone. Like they dropped off the face of the earth, you know, in comic books anyway. And you kind of wonder, wow, you know, whatever happened to so-and-so I, I, I so want to do that one of these days. We're definitely going to get around to that show eventually. Yeah. I would love to do that as well. It's a very interesting topic. And I think it's, it would be cool if, you know, I'm surprised CGS hasn't done something like that. Yeah. So maybe we can be, you know, pioneers in this area. Ah, there we go. Now they're <laughs> going to steal it and they'll, they'll put it out like a week before we we get it all in the can or whatever. But no, I'm I'm kidding. But uh, you know it, it. You know you commented right off the bat about the uh, the ad on the cover of this to watch the Flash. Now I was actually reading this title when oh. when this issue came out and I dropped it. Like uh, well, I'm looking here at at my records. It looks like I dropped it like an issue or two later. Because my last one, I, I've got straight from 1 to 53, and the next issue, 53, is the one where he raced Superman, Superman. Yeah. I think for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, then I since the crisis, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's what I meant, the first, you know, the first time post-crisis. Mm-hmm. And then I don't have 54, but I've got 55, but I may only have 55 because it's a War of the Gods crossover, I'm not sure. But anyway, I was reading this right from number one, but... I'm really amazed looking back on it that I stuck with it for so long because I loved the first little over a year that Mike Barron was the writer on it because I thought it was just firing on all cylinders. I really, really loved his take on Wally Wally West and The Flash and the whole deal, and I was really digging it. And then Mesner Loeb's came along, and it's not... I don't want people to get the wrong impression. It's not that I don't like the guy. It's not that I didn't care for what he was trying to do. But he went a little sillier route, I felt. And I'm not sure exactly what it was he was trying to do. I don't know if he was trying to capture... If he was trying to do a blend between the, the barren, slightly more serious stuff and the Silver Agey pre you know prior flash stuff that was a little little sillier and a little i mean even right even right up to the very end of the prior flash series it still felt very silver agey you know right into the 80s it felt like a silver age title mm-hmm. with just the, the silly contraptions and the silly villains and silly plots and things like that and i felt like this mesner Loeb run the the longer it it ran that i read it felt like it was kind of devolving into that and i just didn't care to go there so you know it's funny that you comment how much you like kind of the silly way that this story goes but i don't remember this specific story very well but i just remember that a lot of them kind of felt like that by the end of the story you were like oh god that's so stupid (laughs) you know and when i was wanting something more serious, like the title started out, it just kind of wore on me for, for a while until I eventually dropped it. And I'd be curious now to go back and, and reread it and see if I felt the same way. Because I, I hear that not long after this, that you know the the Flash really ramped up, like when uh, Wade came along and stuff like that. And I've dropped back into the Flash a couple of times to check out what's going on, but I never stick with it for very long. Yeah, it's it's kind of more of a this issue is more like kind of a childhood um, type of sentimental comic it, it ah. might not be great 
you know, but <laughs> oh no, I'm, I'm 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 not trying to knock it. I'm just I'm I just gotcha. saying where I was when I read it. You know, originally. I gotcha, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll be interested in really reading um, the whole of the Messner Lopes run, and um, I, would, I would love to, for DC to collect the Mike Barron stuff because I'm surprised that stuff hasn't been collected yet. Oh, has it not? Oh, that's a shame because that's that's some really good stuff. Yeah, not to, not to my knowledge, but yeah, I'd love to read that stuff too. Yeah, it's been uh, well, it's been since it came out that I've I've looked at it again, but uh, you know I have like fond but v- same same thing as always fond but vague memories <laughs> of it. So it's the same old story all over again. <laughs> well, all right, Scott. So what is uh, your pick ah, for this? Back here to the we bits? go. Okay, for this one we are going back just a little bit further. Actually, we are going back to April 1990. Now I was born in April, so this means I would have been turning uh, 22 back in uh, 1990, which Jesus Christ seems like wow. an age ago. <laughs> For uh, Marvel Fanfare number 50. Now this is the original Marvel Fanfare series. This particular story, there's only one. Sometimes they would have more than one story in these things, but there's only one story in this particular one, and then there's a couple pages of uh, of filler art at the end. Um, But this story is written by Joe Duffy, who's a a favorite of mine from back in her uh, days on Marvel Comics Star Wars. Now, I was very pleasantly surprised to find out that the art in this story is drawn by Joe Staten, an old favorite of mine. And I just I literally had no idea that uh, that he was going to be the interior artist on this. And I'll come back to that point in just a second for a reason. Um, Inked by Joe Rubenstein. And the cover on this issue, this is what I'm coming back to. The cover, strangely, amazingly seems to be by the same team. It, it's it, There's initials in the artwork that say JS and JR, which I'm assuming are Joe Staten and Joe Rubenstein. Now, as much as I'm a fan of both of those gentlemen and as much as the, the interior art on this issue is really, really solid, this is a, forgive me, fellas, a horrible cover. I mean, I when I picked it up, I really thought that this was going to be, I'm sure I picked this up somewhere for like 50 cents or a quarter or whatever, or maybe as part of a, like a giant collection I bought on the cheap. Mm. And, you know, when this came up, just at random as, as the issue for, for this episode, I just looked at that cover and I thought, well, I'm not expecting much out of this. Because it really is, for a Joe Staten cover, it's just not Joe Staten quality at all. Uh, yeah. and, uh, I mean, if you saw it, you, I think you'd, you'd know where I'm going with that. So I was really surprised when I opened it up and inside I was like, "Oh, Joe Staten." But then when I, you know, when I came to do the credits and I realized, "Well, wait a minute. He actually did this really bad cover on it." It just was funny. It just really made it that much funnier to me. Anyway, original cover price uh was $2.25 and the uh the sto- the uh title of this story is If I Had the Wings of an Angel. We start out the story and this is an X Factor story, and this is from sometime early in the X uh, the uh, excuse me X Factor history. What's his name? Warren Worthington III is Archangel at this point. You know he's he's got the blue skin and the and the steel wings and all that, and it looks just by the framing of the story, it looks like this is pretty early on after he's just become Archangel. So somewhere after like X factor 24, you know, when, when he came back as, uh, as Archangel, uh-huh. you know, they referenced that big goofy alien ship thing that they were using as a headquarters at the time and all that. And 
we start off the story and we see uh, Warren's kind of standing lost in his own thoughts or whatever. And Beast and Iceman came up to him and they tell him that they have something that they need to talk to him about. They're approaching him very delicately because it's a sensitive topic and they really need to talk to him about a woman that they just met named Cressida Destford. Uh, Cressida Destford. That's a hard name to say. And it kind of snaps um, Archangel out of his reverie and he's like uh, – Oh, you know, Cressy? And, and they're like, oh, so, you know, and Iceman says, oh, you really do know her then. And uh, Angel says, okay, tell me all about it. What happened? And we see a, uh, a flashback sequence, and we're flashing back to Arcade, the villain Arcade. And, okay, I never liked this guy. I want to get that out of, the, out of my system right off the bat. I never thought Arcade was, was a very interesting villain. Maybe yeah. that's just me, but I just don't like him. I think he's kind of lame. Anyway, he's watching a movie. You know, uh, like a old-fashioned, you know, real projected movie onto a little white screen. He's watching a movie of Angel, the original Angel, in flight. You know, before the blue skin and all that. And I love the splash page with the credits and the title of the story. It's just a beautiful picture of Angel in his, uh, you know, that satiny red outfit that he's got with the big white X over. It. I just, I, I really have always liked that outfit. Uh, it looks yeah, really awesome. Arcade is talking to his assistant, Miss Locke, about the the job that they've just been hired to do and everything, and that they're going to basically they they they've been hired to lure in the X Terminators. Who at this time, okay, this is when X Factor was running all the ads on TV and all this about you know that they would. Round, you know, you could call them kind of like the Ghostbusters with your mutant problem, and then they would go and they would, you know, round the mutants up and and do whatever that they did. That that was the kind of thing that never made a lot of sense to me with X Factor was what exactly were they telling the public that they were going to do with the mutants? That never seemed addressed to me. Were they telling the public we're, we'll exterminate your mutant problems, or were they telling them we'll round them up? I never quite made that that connection and figured that out. But arcade in this part is talking about, he's basically figured out that X factor and X terminators are exactly the same people. And they, they've been hired by this, uh, this woman, this desperate woman to basically kill Warren, uh, you know, the angel and his friends because of this deception. She feels like it, it has damaged human um, mutant relations and she wants something done about it. She wants revenge about it basically against Warren and all. But this is at a time when the angel was believed to be dead. So Arcade is going to continue with his mission with the the angel's associates, basically the rest of X-Factor. So we flash to the X-Factor hideout and they're all sitting around. They're very upset about Angel. Uh, again, this was at a time when, when he was believed to be dead. And all of a sudden, there's uh, a, a tap at the window, and they turn around, and they see a young boy. Looks like he's only just a couple years old, maybe, I don't know, five, six years old at most. And he's a winged boy. You know, he's got, he's got uh, angel wings, and he's at the door, and he says hi, and then he flies away. And Bobby, Iceman, and uh, the Beast, they run out after the kid. They're trying to track him down. And, you know, they run through the city and they're ice sliding through the city and they're chasing this this flying kid and they end up going into, you know, down this alley and they run in a door. And about the time that they're starting to figure out that maybe they're being led into a trap, 
you know, the, the door slams down behind him, and sure enough, they've been led right into Murder World by this kid. So then they have to run through a gauntlet that uh, that Arcade and Miss Locke put them through. While they're running through this whole uh, this whole uh, death trap scenario and this maze, uh, this uh, Miss Desford has a flashback, and we basically get her life story about you know how she you know well well other girls her age at the boarding school that she went to were obsessed with movie stars and rock stars and stuff. She was obsessed with superheroes and mutants. And she quickly figured out that at the boys' school that she could see out her window, I, I think it says across the lake or across the river or whatever from her, that somebody over there was a mutant because she actually spied Warren as the angel, like learning about his wings and learning to fly and stuff. And she was determined that she was going to meet him, which she eventually did. And she basically seduced him and uh, and eventually, you know, went off to, to bear his baby without him apparently knowing that he was even the father of a, you know, of a baby. And that kind of catches us up on where she's at at this point. And, uh, you know, and, and she has financed this whole attempt through arcade to kill X factor because she feels like Warren is betraying his own people and betraying mutants by taking place or taking part rather in the whole X factor deceptor deception and all that. So it's, it's really a complicated plot. <laughs> Sounds and, like a lot of outsourcing. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then we, uh, there's a lot, a lot of story wrapped up with, with Bobby and, uh, and Hank the Beast going through, you know, this death trap thing. I'm not going to go through all of it because it's really just your standard, you know, arcade, you know, coming up with this great big elaborate death trap thing. They fight their way through it. But at some point while Ar- uh, Arcade, Miss Locke, and Miss Desford are watching all these shenanigans go on on the monitor, suddenly they realize that Miss Desford's little boy the flying boy, you know, the, the winged boy has gone back into the maze after he led Iceman and Beast into it to basically check on them. He doesn't realize he's being played as a pawn in all this. He doesn't realize that this is a death trap and all that. He, you know, when he sees that these guys are in trouble, you know, he, he does what, you know, I guess what a little kid would do. He's concerned for their safety and he's trying to do what he can to help them. Miss Desford freaks out, of course. She realizes, you know, her little boy's in a death trap and she's trying to get him out of it. And Arcade's getting all pissed off because she's basically interfering with, you know, his, you know, his toy, his creation of Murder World and all. And he, he gets really upset with her and she says, well, I'm paying you for all this, but he's, he's not having any of it. He's basically, you know, maybe you paid for it, but, you know, nobody interrupts, you know, an artist while he's working or whatever. You know, he takes that kind of a stance. So she basically runs out of the room to go collect her child. You know, death traps be damned. She's going to save her her baby. And she goes and she rescues him. And uh, Bobby and uh, Hank manage to free themselves. Well, then all four of them basically find them, or excuse me, all three of them, because uh, the, the child is rescued and he flies off. You know, his mother tells him, you know, you go back to the command center, little you know, young man, and you, you know, you wait for mommy. I'm, I'm going to come deal with you shortly. Well, while she's doing that, she finds herself trapped right alongside um, Iceman and the Beast in this in this death trap room. And, you know, we cut back to the command center where Arcade and, uh, and Ms. Locke are basically like, well, oh, well, you know, we, we warned her not to go in there. And she went in there anyway. 
And despite the fact that, you know, Miss Desford has, has paid them, she paid them in advance. So they look at it as, oh, well, we got our money. If we end up killing the lady that, that set this whole thing up, well, oh, well, you know, we got ours out of this. So they don't care one way or the other. The kid freaks out, of course, you know, the, 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 the little boy, and he's, you know, he's trying desperately to save his mother and everything and uh, ends up getting the, uh, the sequence aborted so that everybody's set free. And when Miss Desford realizes that Hank and Bobby, you know, were not going to leave each other, that, you know, each one was willing to sacrifice their life for the other one, she realizes that maybe she screwed up and that, you know, they weren't mutant haters and that, you know, that all this was a ploy and she misunder, you know, misunderstood the situation and misread everything. And it just, it gets a little bit weird with the whole thing. And she seems very conflicted on whether she really intended to harm these guys or whether she's just bitter over what, something that happened with Warren or just exactly what the hell the story is here. But in the end, Bobby and Hank kind of kind of just slink away at the end. You know, they, they've had enough of this whole murder world thing. Uh, Desford is reunited with her little boy, and Arcade is just kind of left in the control room nobody ever attempts to bring him to justice or or capture him or anything you know the the you know our heroes just kind of leave so then we flash back to you know where the story began with uh, Iceman and Beast relating this story to the angel so they say that uh, you know they wrap up their story by telling angel that you know basically you know the the little boy seems like a really nice kid now they've come to the conclusion you know through what they were told and what they learned that that boy was Warren's. But Warren says, you know, I'm sure he's a terrific kid, but he is not mine. And he proceeds to relate this story about how he did know this girl, he did date this girl, but uh, she actually got married to this geneticist guy. And, you know, they, they became good friends of Warren's. You know, he was often over at their place, you know, regaling them with tales of his adventures with the X-Men and of being the angel and being a superhero and all that. And they became basically so obsessed with him that when they had a child of their own, they used a combination of genetics and nuclear radiation to mutate their child to a point to where he actually grew wings, just like the angel. And the the tragic part of the story is is that through the use of nuclear energy, her husband got the cancer and died, and now her little boy, this little winged boy, he's actually got the cancer real bad too, is not is not going to live much longer, and it's basically fractured her mind to where she created this whole scenario in her head about, you know, the angel was, was the father of the child and she needed to seek revenge or whatever the hell. And that's pretty much where the story wraps up. And I was that's like, damn, for a story that it doesn't even take up all of this issue, wow. I mean, you talk about your exposition and convoluted plot. And it's not that it was bad. It's that it was just like information overload. There was a lot of meat going on in this issue. But... It was nice for me to see the angel be front and center because I'm not the biggest X-Men. As a matter of fact, I'm not really much of an X-Men fan at all. Despite having read a hell of a lot of X-Men and X-Factor and all the other X-Books over the years, I still don't consider myself a fan. It's just that there's there's a couple of characters in the X-Books that 
I, I feel somewhat of an attachment to Angel and Iceman being two of them. So that was really one of the reasons I, I probably picked this up, just because those guys were in it. So I enjoyed it. It didn't thrill me, but I really liked the, the Staten art. I had no idea that Staten ever did anything related to the X-Men, so I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, maybe he's done a ton of it. I just don't remember ever seeing it before, but I, I thought that was interesting. And uh, not a bad little book. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Staten did uh, the JLA back then, back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. He did, or no, he did... Uh, what was it Flash? Staten did... Oh, gosh, he's done so much stuff. I'm trying to... Th- he may have done something with the JLA, but what I what I primarily uh, equate Staten with, you know, when I think of Joe Staten, is I think of, uh, you know, the work he did on the Justice Society, like in Adventure Comics and uh, All-Star Comics when that had a short revival. Nice. Um, he did some work on uh, Superboy... Like in Adventure Comics, he did uh, he did Green Lantern in the oh, '80s for quite a long time. Like when when uh, Guy Gardner first came back and became popular and got the Moon Boot uniform and all that, you know, the, yeah. pretty much the uniform he wears today. That all that stuff was Staten, to, to my recollection. And uh, another one of those, I don't know that I'd say forgotten or whatever, but I, just definitely underrated. Not one of the guys you hear talked about very much, and I think he's just a solid artist, you know. Yeah, he's rock solid. Uh, every every you know piece of artwork that I've seen of him is it's not even like just average. It's, it's pretty. It's very capable. Very rock solid. Oh yeah, and uh, it, it's even at times uh, beautiful to look at. So oh, definitely, definitely. Oh, he also did uh, um, the uh, Huntress backup feature in Wonder Woman for for quite a while. That was some gorgeous art on that. So I mean, he draws beautiful beautiful women. You know, the the two things I always remembered him or remember him best for is his beautiful women and uh and I always really just I liked his uh his uh Superboy stuff, you know. He, yeah. he did quite a number of issues of Superboy and as a kid I just had a real affinity for Superboy. And I always appreciated the artists that that could really make him look very dynamic, and uh, and Staten was you know at the top of that list. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, the X Factor. I don't, um, I never followed the Louis Simonson stuff, although I keep hearing good things about it. And uh, I actually just bought um, not too not too long ago. I bought a, a Marvel Fanfare trade, which they traded. I'm, I'm not sure. I think the first twenty issues, maybe a little less. Uh huh. And that book, that book is always good in that uh, it always has vignettes of characters, you know, spots like it spotlights different characters, very interesting situations, and it always attracts um, very different creators that you wouldn't expect on the title. Oh yeah, I, I have not read a whole he- heck of a lot of uh, of Marvel fanfare, but whatever I, I read, I'm always whether I like it or not, I'm always surprised by you know the 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 tryout nature of it. It's very much what it feels like. It, it, I, to my understanding, Marvel fanfare was kind of two concepts in one. It was it was something of a tryout book for new new writers or artists or whatever but it was also um a book where a lot of times like uh what do they call that when they've got like an inventory of of stories that they yeah like a stock story stock, yeah stock stories where where they would basically pull something out of the out of the stock files and go okay let's finally run this story and mm-hmm. i and in this particular case i think that's what this story was was it was a story that um, cause who was the guy that was the big, I'm trying to remember, uh, Al Milgram, Al Milgram was the oh, big, yeah. 
driving force behind Marvel fanfare. And he would always uh, have a little cartoon feature on the inside front cover. And in this one, he actually reveals that this is a, uh, I'm trying to say they, he calls it what it is. I can't, an anthology, maybe? Yeah, in, in just inventory. He just oh. calls it an inventory story. And that's nice. what this this is. It was just an inventory story that, that these guys had done for X Factor, and he basically just pulled it out of the files and ran with it. So I think that's a, a cool concept. But I know that, you know, some of the stuff I, I'd read in this title over the years you know, was really interesting. You know, I, I can remember reading like a uh, – Norm Brayfogle, Captain America story, and I mean that's just not somebody that you equate with Captain America is Norm Brayfogle, but it was you know it was really cool stuff like that. I love that that concept, you know, of of seeing yeah. you know creators you might not think of as necessarily a Marvel char- uh, creator working on a character you definitely don't you know associate them with that that sort of thing. So that's really it's really cool, and it makes me want to check out more uh, of the Marvel fanfare style books that marvel did over the years I, I really have not read all that many of them yeah it's interesting marvel fanfare was you know marvel fanfare was one of those um among the more successful of, of the anthologies even though if, if it wasn't like a, a sale success i think it was more of a critical success mm-hmm. and it, it i would definitely recommend getting the first trade if you like that uh, the first trade should be out uh it might be out of print but um it should be still easily available and it has tons of stories. It has a Michael Golden story of uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men in a, in a Savage Land. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of good stuff in there. I, I would like to actually pick that up. I, I will definitely, based on that uh, synopsis you gave it, that sounds like an interesting story. <laughs> and, uh, if anything, I would just get it for the art. <laughs> there you go. Special thanks to Will Sanchez for joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out Will's totally awesome Avengers-centric podcast at www.avengersassemblepodcast, that's all one word, .libson.com, on which I myself am a frequent guest. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.